This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Hello once again, welcome to another episode of the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton with me, Andrew Carter, but more importantly with one of the key figures of the European game. Today we are in Dublin with a man who is one of the modern day greats of the game. I know that word great is bandied around quite a lot, but uh, entirely deserves six Ryder Cup appearances, four of them wins, 15 European Tour victories, three more on the PGA Tour and within those titles, three major championships. He is, of course, Podrick Harrington. Podrick, uh, welcome. Actually, you say welcome. I'm in. I can't say welcome to <laughs> you. Here we are. Welcome to my house. Well, thank you very much. We are in. Uh, we are in Podrick Harrington's. Would you describe this as a man cave? This is the Uber man cave. Yeah, I, yeah, more of a kid cave now. I think. Oh. Uh, yeah, my kids are. One of them's a teenager. It's more becoming their place. Uh, maybe originally. I think I originally designed it with that that sort of idea that would be somewhere where your kids would hang out and you might hang out with them. Yeah, so um, for you loyal listeners, we're surrounded by some uh, some vintage, I'd say, I'd say 80s, some of them, 70s oh, yeah. Space Invaders there, but yeah. some vintage uh, Seven, arcade Space games. Space Invaders right at the end of the 70s, yeah. but obviously I wasn't, it was in the 80s, I would have seen that, and we've got uh, Pac-Man and Gallica there, uh, Table tennis table. Uh, table tennis table with robot. With robot server yeah. as well. Yeah, so. that's quite a bit of fun. You can spend an hour or two hitting shots there. Yeah. Uh, not quite the same as playing against somebody. No, there uh, we are. Yeah, it's quite quite good. There's one or two modern games. House of the Dead is there, and uh, and uh, it's it's a Star Wars space uh, Star Wars pinball machine. That's okay. that's also gets a bit of use. And memorabilia from uh, well, a life and I mean, there's so many things to to describe. I mean, what have we got? Uh, Hogan winning at 53 in Carnoustie, something there to represent that, some trophies, either a key for a giant car or something to represent one of your victories. You've got a giant Honda key and a Honda Classic. So Yeah, any of the tournaments I won that you get a car, you also get the key to represent it. So I, I kind of keep the keys. The cars go by the wayside. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't picked up on that one. Well, we have, but I was going to save that too, because I'm going to go through them in very chronological form. But this is basically your scorecards, and with the signature of uh, of Michael Campbell from the Benson Hedges International. Yeah, where you got disqualified. Where you yeah. got disqualified. Yeah. So, well, okay, let's start with that then. So, just quickly, you you keep that on the wall along with all your triumphs. But uh, well, there's not really many of my triumphs now. A lot, of, a lot of that sort of stuff is put. You know, I've got one there. My physio giving me a neck exercises. This is. It kind of reminds you of yeah. things. It's more interesting, obviously, uh, when I was leading the Benson Hedges by five, I think, going into the last round. I uh, The hotel decided at the Belfry that they'd get the cards and frame them. So they took the cards out, and as they were looking at them, uh, they discovered that on day one, my signature wasn't on the card. It was signed by Jamie Spence, who was my marker, and Michael Campbell, who was the third person in the group, uh, as Jamie passed the card to Michael to pass to me, Michael instinctively just signed where there was an empty space. And when I checked for two signatures, there was two signatures. Uh, so yeah, I was disqualified on the Sunday. I was I was rather gutted. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I think you have shed said, a tear. Yeah, you shed a tear. Oh, um, but you said that you learn more from defeats than oh well, that's that, yeah. Of course, you're going to learn from that. That's not a learning. That well, I suppose I did learn. I signed the card now twice. So I sign on top of my name as well as in the marker's position because all you have to do is put your mark on the card. Even if I'd initial the number on the card, it was good enough. Mm. Uh, obviously, they've done away with that rule since Mark Rowe got disqualified from the Open. Mm. Uh, you just have to sign the card. But hey, 
I think they've even done away with it again now. I think it, it, once it's your card, I think even if you sign the wrong person's card, there's all sorts of things to change. All I know is I signed the card twice. Okay. So to make sure it doesn't happen again, I sign on top of my name. Uh, I suppose it's an unlikely scenario to happen, but look, it could happen again. It wasn't a big learning experience. My my brother was there at the time, and he somewhat nullified it by saying, you know, this would be one of the few times that people won't remember who won the tournament. They'll remember who, well finished second but not finished second who obviously was disqualified so do you remember who won the tournament now you're a bit of an officiado so I think you do it wasn't Michael Campbell anyway was no. it uh, it was a Olaf, big name one. it was Olaf Abel it was a lad uh, okay. one yeah right okay listen you've taken us out of our neatly uh, chronological timeline here because we want to go back to the very start then and say because here we are we're, we're sort of south of Dublin it wouldn't be a million miles away from here that you you grew up on the sort of south side of Dublin oh it's only two 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 miles straight mm. across the hills to where I am, two, three miles to, to where I played my golf and another couple of miles, I suppose, five miles to my actual home. How old were you when you started playing? Uh, I was at the golf course from the age of four. That's Stackstown. Stackstown. So my dad, I was at the golf course from the age of two, I suppose. They, he, he was a founder member of a golf course for the police in Dublin. Mm. Uh, a dozen of them got together and built a golf course because it was difficult for young policemen who came to Dublin from the country to get into golf clubs they, it was expensive or they weren't considered golf club material uh, so they built their own course uh, it was 15 minutes from my home and that's where I hung out from uh, you know I probably hung out from the, whenever I could walk even earlier because it was started in 71 and I was born in 71 and you, you mentioned already one of your brothers at the, at the B&H but what, you'd be the youngest of five the youngest of five yeah so that's, that's a competitive environment well, yes, I would agree. They were, the oldest is nearly 10 years older than me, so I wouldn't say it was it was reasonably competitive, but I would have said I got more of the opportunities. Like, all my brothers would have been uh, would have been working when they were teenagers. You know, at 13 years of age, they all would have been lounge boys in, in pubs and things like that, restaurants. They were all working, so I probably was the first one in the family who didn't work as a teenager. I was, I was able to play golf. And... and you know, you got good quickly. Scratch at 15, would that be? No, I, I tell you what, I, I was, let's see, I was a five handicap at 15, okay. nine handicap at 14. I was, went from 14, actually it was higher than five, I was a nine handicap. Of, could I have been nine at 15? No, it must have been the other way around. So I was, I went from nine to five at 14, five to one at 15, one to scratch at 16. All right, so it was a quick progress at the age of, sort of 15. That's when well, you really not like today's. No, well, I know, but I mean, a, a one handicap in the 1980s is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To... It, I kind of put it like this. I was able to beat everybody in my immediate vicinity at all ages. So when I was 13, I was beating the kids in my golf club. When I was 14, I was starting to beat the kids in my locality. 15 I was starting to beat them in my province and, and actually in the country so I start, I made the boys team when I was 15 yeah. so I, I progressed very nicely but never jumped I never jumped out of my category which is kind of strange you know you see these guys now at 14 years of age playing pro events I didn't play a professional event until I was 24 yeah. I always played in my own own area first and, and kind of made sure I grew that before I went to the next area. Well I mean you touched upon it there, you had a long amateur career and very long by today's standard I mean so many people turn pro so young, they might play one Walker Cup 
but you played three, 91, 93, 95. Was that not an insecurity, but just you wanted to be absolutely sure that you could no, make it? No, far from it. I had no intention of being a professional golfer. Uh, you know, 18 years of age, there was a junior panel picked in this country uh, of 20 players, and I didn't get on it. But you had a great amateur record. I mean, you were winning all your matches. Uh, well, near enough, I, all I was, I, as far as I was concerned, I was the best player in the country at, uh, in that age group at that time. But for whatever reason, I could be overlooked. Uh, it was one of the most glaring committee decisions that has ever been made because uh, three months later I was playing on the full Irish team. Mm. Uh, I'd, I'd skipped that, well not skipped it, but I'd, you know, I progressed. So it was a very odd decision. I'd gone from playing for under 18 for Great Britain and Ireland and when I got to 18 they decided I wasn't good enough for the, the junior panel under 21s. But however, so it's not that I wasn't good enough, it, it just shows that I could be overlooked, yeah. that I didn't, as successful as I was in my performances, there was obviously an element that you couldn't see with me. I, I wasn't a, a very, uh, you know, I wasn't a pretty golfer. I got yeah. it done. Yeah. Uh, and, and at that stage, you know, 18 years of age, I was like most kids, I just left school and what do I do? wasn't really sure. I wanted to be in the golf industry. I didn't think I was good enough to be a golf pro. I'd known, I actually had no inkling to be a golf pro at 18 years of age so I went into night school uh, did accountancy at night and it was only halfway through that like I was 20 over like not quite 21 when I decided I would have a go at turning pro because I could beat the other guys who were turning pro I thought if they thought they were good enough I could beat them so why not have a go and my aspirations only ever were to be, have a, a journeyman career on, 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 you know, it would have been very suc- successful if I held my card for five years, you know, finishing 50 to 100 in the European Order of Merit. That's a very successful career. I would have been very happy with that. That was where my aspirations were. Uh, and, you know, I finished my accountancy at 23 and took the year off and practiced, uh, played full time. Not that I wasn't playing full time, you know, when you're doing night school, you're getting as much golf as you want in. Uh, so yeah look I would have thought I was at the stage I was studying accountancy I would have thought I was going to be you know a golf course manager something like that I didn't know player management existed I would have liked that I think that's where I would have tried to go if I if I had a new known about it but you don't know these things when you're a kid you, you know you, very, you don't know what's out there in the big world but do you do you need a sort of role model to inspire I'm not saying I mean, on the south side, in fact, I think you went to the same school as Paul McGinley. Now, he'd be a couple of years older, but he was quite a late developer in golfing terms as well, in terms of turning. Yeah, absolutely. That wouldn't be. He was five years ahead of me in school, so I didn't know him in school, but I knew of him. I knew of him in the area. And yeah, he was a late developer. Uh, again, he was, I think he was at best number three in his golf club. There was two players uh, in the club. That, funny enough, the cl- that's the closest club to where I lived. Uh, but there was already two players in that club, maybe three players in that club. Actually, now that I think of it, there was three players on their junior team that were better than him. Don't ask me to name them. Because uh, British Boys champion, one of them, Leslie Walker. All oh, right, yeah. So no. he, was, he was the big star in the area yeah. at the time. And there was uh, uh, Brian Shaw, who's down at uh, Doombeg, the pro there. And I'm, I'm struggling with the third, but there was a third guy there at one stage. I, I tried to join the club too at one stage, but uh, I didn't manage to get in. Oh, that would be a good team. But it just yes. shows in terms of development of golfers, there are so, so many different ways of doing it. And don't be too frustrated if you... That's you, the beauty of golf. You don't have to be good at this game at 14 years of age. And it can actually be quite detrimental to be good. You know, you show me 
a 14-year-old hits all the fairways and all the greens, he's unlikely to be a good pro. You know, you, you, want, you want the guy with a bit of imagination, a bit of flair, maybe fighting the system. They're the ones who tend to make it successful. And as I said, you don't really need to hit your peak onto your, into your 20s because it's a, it's a long career. And it, 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 we've seen so many good players who are like beautiful golfers. Mm. Beautiful golfers and star players. I think the ones who are star players but aren't beautiful golfers when they're teenagers seem to go on. But the ones who are really good as teenagers but also swing the club well and hit the golf ball well and have all that sort of uh, game in hand, the stress and the pressure just builds as they go on. And, and, and where's the improvement? They can't improve their swings, so, so they, they struggle when they, when they get out in the pro tour and you know, they, they become a small fish, small fish in a very big pond. Yeah. That, that third Walker Cup you played in 95 at Porth Call, that was your, your first Walker Cup win. That was an interesting Walker Cup because there were so many different characters coming together um, on yeah. both sides. And that, was that your first experience at Tiger Woods? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we'd, we'd heard of him, but yeah, that was my first experience. Uh, he obviously was the, the big star of the show in 95. Gordon Sherry was our, our counter to that, uh, you know, which was unfortunate for Gordon because in the end of the day, the, the media just hyped him up so much, built him up so much, and in many ways he believed that hype. Gordon was a fine player. We played oh, a, lot, a lot of games, myself and Gordon. We, were, we still are good friends today. And like he could play, but I think he got somewhat lost in believing the hype, believing the perfection that he had. Where you know he was taught by Bob Torrance, and I would have played a lot with him. And he he hit the ball great. He had a great short game, but he was by no means he was the same as the rest of us. He was by no means he missed plenty of shots and just recovered just the way everybody else did it. Yeah, well, see, I was the seventeenth best player at my club, and now Gordon was because I grew up playing with Gordon at Clara Brassi and Alan reading people at Jim Billig and things like that. Oh so, yeah, yeah, play, yeah played with yeah. Jim. Played my first. Uh, I played my first home international singles match against Jim Milling in mm. 1990. Yeah, good old Jim. Anyway, we're sort of digressing somewhat, but yeah. um, moving on, turning pro then. Actually, 96, you know, it happened for you. There was some success quite early on, so you must have thought this transition, why did I wait so long? But it happened quite easily for you. Yeah, well, you say that. I, 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 I turned pro after the home internationals in 95, and probably my proudest record is my amateur record. I never lost a singles match in the home internationals. Mm. I never lost a singles match in the European Championships either. So those are, are my, you know, up there with anything else I've ever done in golf. So it was a good catalyst to go on. Um, but I did play the European European Open in the K-Club mm. in the October of that year. And, uh, you know, as a young kid playing the first pro event, I did make a little bit of a, some strategic errors in preparation. And uh, I remember I played with two of the bigger stars in the European Tour and I, I certainly don't hold this against the guy. And if, if I was the player myself, looking back, I would have said the same thing. But after my first two rounds, one of the seasoned pros was heard telling anybody in the clubhouse who would listen to him, why is this guy turning pro? He will never make it. Right. But if I was looking at myself at that stage, I would have said the same thing. But does that, a little bit like being overlooked, you know, in the, in the yeah, Irish head, does that it, sort of spur you on a bit? At it, a bit it's not, no, not a spurring on. And, and, and it wasn't, it wouldn't, no, it, I didn't need adversity. I don't need spurring on. And I remember that the, the committee came back and said, oh, we were trying to motivate you. I'm the last person who needed motivation. It just showed what style of player I was. It's like... You had know, a great, you had a great shot. I mean, a great shot and great... But you can't, you can't 
you don't see what I had. I had the X factor. You don't see it. Mm. You know, you, it's easy to see a guy with a beautiful golf swing who smashes it out there miles, and you go, oh, "That guy looks like a player." I didn't look like a player uh, at the time. I would have been like I would have been soft. I was a big enough guy, but you know, overweight, soft enough, and and you know, I had a, a pull cut off the tee, I had a bit everything going on, and it, it's very easy. If I saw myself playing, and then I would have said, "Well." This guy ain't making it, but you can't see the, the hidden stuff. Hmm. Now, it's interesting you talk about that because there is that sort of intangible. And also people who you can be very successful amateurs, but it's a very different thing playing golf for a living when it, there's a, a different kind of pressure there. I presume. There's a, there is a different pressure. Now, I would say, you know, in terms of a good amateur player, why does he not play well as a pro? There's one simple reason. He doesn't believe that he's good enough and he's always trying to... He's never within his own, he's never playing within himself. He's always trying to play somebody else's game when he turns pro. We've seen it so many times. We've seen so, so many great amateurs playing pro events. They're great players and they turn up as a pro and all of a sudden they're trying to play like a pro. They're trying to play above themselves. They're trying to, all this sort of stuff instead of just doing their own thing and settling and see where they, where, where they stand in the game. There, there is nothing in this game of golf that compares with self-confidence. Mm. If you've got self-confidence, if you believe in your stuff, and that's why we keep seeing it time and time again, you know, we see a lot of the guys who, I, won't, I don't like using, who have ego. A lot of the guys who have ego are the ones who eventually come through, and uh, not necessarily the, the beautiful, talented players. It's the ones who, who can believe that their stuff is good enough. And I, and I think I myself... That was the biggest thing to make my success on the tour. When I got out, I, I got through tour school, fine, no problem. Uh, you know, I, I think in nine rounds of tour school, I didn't, I don't think I failed once to get up and down around the green or and I didn't have a three putt. You, you know, your, your brother was, was that Tig was on the Tig was caddying for me, so yeah. How, yeah, how, Tig would have been my, my, my tournament caddy back in the day. Now, both my other brothers, sorry, Cullum caddy for me when I was in the UK. My dad caddy for me as well. But when when things were serious, Tig was the one who who was who was on the bag. And yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I I've got to say, it must have been incredible watching me as a caddy and being involved in it because like I I literally was all over the place at times and still putting scores together. Mm. Uh, I I still do it today. Uh, you know, I know I, I pride myself on that that. You know, I shoot scores that nobody else could shoot from where I'm playing from. Yeah, I mean, and now in this extraordinary man cave of, of many treasures, I didn't see the Spanish Open 1996. Is there a representation from that? Is there a... in this room? No, no. Uh, the trophy's in my office upstairs. Oh, okay, yeah. but there we go. That's yeah. your first on the European tour, so I mean, yeah, that must. Uh... Well, well, I was I got distracted. I was going to tell you. So I, I'm on the Challenge Tour and I get uh, playing a tournament in Kenya, mm-hmm. uh, Nairobi. I'm there, and on the Probably Monday evening, I think, we're out playing a practice round and a call comes in saying that a spot has opened up in the South African PGA, which is on the European Tour in Durban. And uh, I think six players turned it down. I said, no, I'll go. So I flew in on the Tuesday. I practiced for 12, 14 hours on the Wednesday, as you do. Uh, And Durban's like 40 degrees of heat, Mm -hmm. so I got seriously dehydrated. Like, I, I... shook and shivered all night i'm sure i should have been in hospital but back back then we didn't do that uh, you didn't know about it and uh, lucky at a late tea time i had a, a local caddy uh, i played with clubs that had to were four degrees too upright 
I had to grip them on the steel for the week. And this is Kukui grass, so it really is awkward. I hit the ball just about everywhere, and it's a tight golf course. Clearly, I got up and down on every shot, but I discounted that. And at the end of the week, I had finished 46th. I rang my mother and said, Mum, and it was my mum I was talking to, I said, Mum, this is unbelievable. I couldn't have played worse. I couldn't have more things go wrong for me. And yet, I finished 46th. I won £1,480. They are just giving this money away. They are giving it away. And that's how I felt. But you can't believe the confidence I took because I made a cut and I felt I played badly. I felt like there was more in the tank. Whereas a lot of these guys come out, as I said, the young guys, they're good players. They play well and they're, they're on the cut line and things don't go against them. They miss the cut and all of a sudden they think, oh, I, I, my game isn't good enough to make a cut. I've got to change things. I've got to improve things. I would say to any young guy turning pro, don't change a thing for at least two years. Hmm. After two years, you have a good idea where you stand in the game of golf. And yes, you might have to change something. But for the first two years, just play your own game. Okay. So we then move on to the Spanish Open. And we're going to have to skip through a few things because there's so much in your career. But the Spanish Open will just say, just uh, yeah, just sum up the, the feeling of a well, first title. I, I made my first three cuts. Then I, sorry, made my first seven cuts. Then I had three top tens. And then I won the Spanish Open. Uh, it was... I played with blinkers. So basically, after this run, the first, when making the cut, I didn't question anything. It was like I had blinkers on. I just kept playing, playing, playing. I played 10 in a row. Just kept going forward, did not think about it, did not analyse it, did not get into it, and just kept playing. I was running with that ball and never looking behind me and, and never making judgments. Got to the Spanish Open. I just got hot during the week, kept playing. Obviously, hold the putts. Uh, yeah, it was phenomenal. Johnny O'Reilly on my bag. I had an old caddy who was retired. I'd brought out from retirement. Uh, and it was, a, it was a great week. Everything fell into place. And uh, I think the check is here. The check is normally is around it? here. Yeah, I'm surprised. A photocopy of the check. You've, che- you've cashed the check a long time nah, ago. I sure don't need to cash those checks. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Okay, they're small fry. The European tour has got all that money still <laughs> belonging to it. Oh, excellent. £92,000, I think, 166 Really? Yeah. There's the accountant speaking. The accountant that never was. Um, 1997 then. Well, I mean, that's a big year. We'll come on to, you know, getting close to things at Troon in the open. But uh, off the course, as we go a bit Hello Magazine on you, uh, mar- married. Um, is that right, 1997? I hope I've done that. Yeah. Yes, yes, you're correct. Yes. Now, here's, here's a bit of research for you. Is it true that your first film that you went to see with uh, on first date was, uh, was Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse? Yes. 1989. There now, you go. For, for those who haven't seen Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, it's basically Patrick Swayze sort of. Uh, he, he's the bouncer. He's the bouncer, yeah. Just Barrel basically. A brawler, brought fixed. in to sort out the place. And yeah. He falls in. I always think it's Alison Doody. It's not Alison Doody, but very looks very like her. My wife corrects me every time, yeah. so you'll have to tell me who the romantic interest is in the movie. I can't remember. I was just transfixed by Patrick Swayze. For our 20. Uh, no, it was 15-year anniversary. My wife hired out the cinema and we went to see Roadhouse again. Really? Yeah. Oh. Just the two of us. Roadhouse. Oh, dear, I love Roadhouse. Yes. Anyway, again, we've gone off down a sort of uh, Roadhouse side alley. But anyway, so that year, a lot is happening. Uh, happy man off the course. Happy man on the... I mean, true and fifth in the Open Championship. So again, suddenly you feel I can, you know, contend in a, in a major. You know, I didn't contend, though. I played well, had a good week, good score, but I wasn't going to win it, mm. you know. And, and, and I, 
I didn't know I'd finished fifth in it. That's how little, I, I had no idea I'd finished fifth in it. And I can't even tell you anything about it. All I know is I didn't have a chance of winning it because I remember that. Mm. Uh, so that one didn't register whatsoever on my uh, on my career list. Really? I, I, what, do you do you back into it? I can't I can't really remember the final round. I, 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 I know I didn't I didn't have a chance of winning it. What two majors at that stage stand out in my career? I in my first year in '96 I played in the Open at Lidham and I hold a bunker shot on Friday afternoon on the 18th hole with all the crowds there. Mm. Uh, I got so excited the hairs in the back of my neck stood up. I took the putter out of the bag. Obviously, didn't need the putter. I'd hold the bunker shot, so that was one of the more exciting moments in 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 my career. And then the next pivotal moment was, uh, I'm going to skip forward, the Olympic Club, '98. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I played my best golf that I could that week. Again, short game was sharp, so I I maxed my game out that week and finished 27th. Okay. And that was that was the catalyst change for me. Okay. You know, up to that stage, I was doing my thing, and at now I'd moved to a stage that I wanted to try and compete and win in majors. And I saw, well, I just don't have a game for it. Okay, so I'd thought that it was congressional the year before that you had a sort of congressional and wing. No, those those ones wiped me out. I, I I couldn't I couldn't compete. They were big, huge golf courses with manic rough, and I just didn't know how anybody could play these courses. It was when I got to Olympic Club that I actually performed. Right. I hit the ball. I, I, I didn't look at the Olympic Club and, and think I left anything behind. And I was 27th and I was going, well, um, there's an element of this. Obviously, I always knew I could compete in a Lynx golf course. But there's an element of this. I've got to change my physical ability to hit the golf ball if I'm ever going to compete in the US majors. Yeah. And you mentioned, actually, you said you were quite a, quite a big lad. You needed to... Actually... I, I'd already gone down the fitness road. It, I, I think about two years into my career, uh, or even at the end of my first year in the career, I think I started uh, you know, working on the fitness. That was one of the first things I, I, I did, did change. Uh, at the end of my first year, you know, I was probably touching... I was probably a soft 15 stone, if not a little bit more. Uh, at one stage, I got it all the way down to... 165 pounds from what 215 or so wow yeah 165 pounds yeah yeah um yeah oh i tried everything i went up down i've put it on put on muscle taken muscle i've tried everything in the game just to see how how it it affects uh performance so you know in that sense yeah i you know i tried being a skinny man but the worst part about being a skinny man for me and i really really hold a grudge about this Uh i had my body fat down to eight percent yeah and I still didn't have a six pack. Right. Okay. And look, any but look, all the guys in the gym. Yeah. I see it all the time. They start off with good intentions. I'm going to go to the gym to improve my golf, but it becomes very quickly a vanity thing. I want to look good and, yeah. and this. Imagine that eight percent body fat and no no six pack. And I had really good abs. So it's not like I wasn't working it. Like guys at twelve and thirteen percent even can have abs. I. Yeah. Genetically, I'm not great when it comes to that. Yeah, you're looking at me as if, say, uh, well... Well, you're, 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 I don't know, I have no idea. I, I, I'm not envisaging you without your clothes on, that's well, all I'll tell you. Bit, no, I'm still, yeah. I'm still picturing Patrick Swayze for yeah. some reason. Anyway, so <laughs> when did you start working with Bob Torrance? So it was after Olympic Club, 98. Mm. I said, right, who is the best? I knew I had the short game. I knew I had the mental game. Who is the best swing coach in the game? And uh, Bob Torrance was, was easily the best uh, you know, every player he worked with was a great ball striker, and that's yeah. what set him apart. Uh, you know, and, and it was the part we were 
in many ways the perfect match because Bob, yeah, he could do short game, but in the end of the day, Bob really believed that the game should be played. You know, the only time you should be chipping is back to a par four. That's that would be Bob's attitude. It was, and, and every player he had were ball strikers, and he and he worked obviously a lot with 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 he worked a lot with Irish guys at the stage. Nearly all the Irish guys had gone through him, and and I'd known him from working with the Scottish players when I was playing amateur golf. So it was it was an obvious obvious choice. But we were a match made in heaven because I already had the short game and the mental game. I just needed the, the the swing and the long game, and he and he had the tools to teach me those. You spent many an hour in damp teaching bays at Inverclyde outside Largs, is that? Yeah, we didn't spend much in the bays. We were outside most of the time. Yeah, up in Largs, I can tell you what it's cup of tea, Jaffa cakes. Oh, we went through some amount of tea. Yeah, we would go through some tea. Uh, I, you know, it was great times. Yeah. I've got to say, some of the best times ever. Just he, he was somebody who was infectious to be around. He was he just was great. He had great humour. Just he was a super. He was he was a super guy to be around. He was easy to be around. His he he was enthusiastic about the game. Uh, yeah, he was, he was. I always said it at the time. He, he he was. You always wanted to be like him when you got older. That's mm. the sort of person he. he you know, he, his his sense of humour was fantastic. And working with him was was never a chore. The two of us would would happily stand there for. You know, we we'd spend. We'd be up. We're not really early risers. We up maybe from nine o'clock and we come home at five o'clock. How many how many balls do you think you would hit in a day with Bob Torrance? You know, doing session when you're really grinding it out. Well, I I don't know how many balls, but we'd start at nine. We we would obviously break for lunch and we'd be back at five o'clock in the evening, and we'd have our dinner, you know, and we'd be finished our dinner at six half six. We'd be at it again afterwards. We'd be either in the garden or go back up again, or we'd be talking about working on it. We wouldn't leave it alone. Like it, it was close to, you know, there were certainly ten hours of physical work at least in in in, the, in that day, maybe twelve. That's a lot of physical work, you know. When you when you when you put it all down together, you know, that's a lot of hitting shots. And yeah, I, I, I I'd never get blisters from it because it'd be hard enough. But I think I don't think if I if I got a blister, I don't think Bob would have taught me. Uh, yeah, he'd be embarrassed for me. <laughs> I can hear him now, but well, I mean, my point is that for anyone who you know, there are exceptions like Monty would have a light practice session, or whatever. But but in most sports, there's no secret. You get out what you put in, and do you have to have something? What what is it that drives you to? Are you just looking for not perfection, but just looking to get better all the time? I, I think I'm particularly driven. There's no doubt about it, and I, and I, and I really like it. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, which I think is a huge part of it. I think uh, the fact that you know, even on my worst day, if I start practicing, so I, I could lose a tournament, make a mess of it, be hor- you know horrible, whatever. And you know, like anybody else, I'd be thinking about it for the, you know that night or whatever. But the minute I get out and start hitting shots the next day, I have this the optimism is me, the, the the belief. And and it's a dream, not necessarily to believe, especially after years that I'm going to find the secret. But, you know, it's it's that, and I think Bob always had that that you know that the next ball could be it. It could make all the difference. It could change everything. You could get that. Even though Bob did say, and it, you know, if you listen to him, that nothing lasts forever. And, and you know, he did say that that you know, how could you swing the club today if you don't keep working on it? It will change itself, and you have to keep going. But in terms of performance, because I wouldn't like to put this out there, you know, there is no point in there's there's 
there's a time and a place for all sorts of practice. You know, changing a golf swing and working on things does require a lot of repetition. But playing competitive golf really doesn't require, once you have your game, it requires more mental strength than anything else. And by Monty not practicing, you know, he was very mentally strong. He was mentally strong on Sundays. He was fresher on Sundays. Uh, you know, one of my... I don't have a regret about it, but one thing I would do different with experience is I practice too often and improve too much on a Saturday evening when I was in contention. The amount of times I, I found something on a Saturday going into a Sunday and hit the ball better on Sunday than I did on Saturday, but didn't play as well, I would say you're better off sticking with what you got at a tournament because uh, it really does come down to your decisions you know, during the week. Yeah, I'm just trying to get what the motivating factor is because saying you know, you're an optimist and believe in the next shots, but is there a motivating factor, whether it's as simple as just making a successful career, winning titles, winning money, looking after your family? What is the thing which drives you to keep, keep going and keep trying? Uh, I just want to get, I just want to, I enjoy the, the aspect of competing and winning and I, I, it's nothing to do with the, with the outcomes. It's, it's more to do with the, the feeling of, wow, I can, if I can change this, I can do this, I get control over this game someday and I'll, I'll, I'll be, yeah, it's the idea that I can get better. Yeah. That is it. That is really it, the drive that I can get better. Okay. The minute I think I can't get better, I think that would be the end of me. Well, let's go to the Ryder Cup because we're nearing uh, another Ryder Cup. And, and, and we talked about this actually. Brookline was your first, and everyone looks back and says, Oh, shock, horror, Brookline. What a. But for you, it was, it was, it was incredible. One. Yeah, it was the best one for me. Uh, obviously, you're looking at Boston, and you had a huge Irish contingent that day event. You got, you got none of the abuse or no, heckling, None whatever. whatsoever. None, none at all. And, and my singles match on the Sunday looked like it was going to be the, the pivotal match. Well, uh, you know, I think we'd lost the first five matches. I was sixth match. I never looked at the leaderboard, but I was the only blue on the leaderboard, even though I wasn't looking. So I'm paying attention to what I'm doing. I'm playing my game, and we're waiting on the 13th green. I remember Duval was up ahead, finishing. I think he was finishing his match at that stage, and they uh, are close to it. And from then on, the crowds just started surging around our, our group. Everybody, because, you know, nobody's watching your match in the Ryder Cup once you're down the order. And then everybody started coming back and watching, and they start they started telling Mark Amira, "We need this one, Mark. You're the one, Mark. We need this." So, as much as I wasn't watching the leaderboard, you know quite well what's going on. And uh, you know, when I closed, we finished on eighteen, closed the match out. I thought I'd won the Ryder Cup. I've never been on a high like it. I was, I was buzzing. I did a a very quick interview. Uh, Elizabeth was four up, so that point was kind of given to us. We or assumed that's why the crowds were thinking mine was the was the match, and uh, I uh, didn't really know much that was going on. I kind of, I say, I ran down the 18th fairway to the 17th green. I glided down the fairway. I probably never touched the ground. Uh, I got there. Everybody congratulated me. I sat down. The crowd settled, and Justin Leonard hold that putt. So that's. The whole extent, I probably, I probably, it probably was ten minutes, but it felt like a minute of me thinking I'd won the Ryder Cup, and in that second, because there wasn't a single, well, there was one person, and that was uh, Jose. He was on the green. Everybody else thought that was the end of the match. I know Jose had a putt, as it turned out, to to have the hole, but 
we all had thought we'd lost at that stage, everybody, the crowd, everybody, and it, it, it was taken away from me that quickly. Yeah. What did you yeah. think when you saw everyone bouncing onto the, the green? Because obviously there was a you know, huge amount of... Oh, we thought it was over. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't think at the time, oh, it's shocking. No. No, I actually took it the opposite. Uh, the greatest thing we've done in Europe, and it, it all showed up in that moment in time, is we've made the Americans care about the Ryder Cup. And that proved that proved that they wanted to win, that they cared. They got too excited. Yeah. They got, you know, there's nothing more than that. They just got over, over, overly excited. Isn't that great? That's why we, you know, find it ran in the green. It wasn't, you know, over the line. We all thought the match was over. Everybody thought it was over. The fact that uh, they did it, yeah, in a perfect world, you wouldn't want them to run in the line. But if you look at it like this, we drove them to that. We created that. And that's... All that the Europeans could have asked for is we were crying up to that. And the reason why we do well in the Ryder Cup is because we have a chip on our shoulder that we don't get the due respect from the US, the European tours, the country cousins of the US. And their emotions at that moment proved, hang on a second, these guys care. And remember at the time, that was the Ryder Cup in 99 was the one that the US were starting to call for being paid. We want to be paid to play in this event. We should get money, this, that and the other. So this was this was a summing up. For, hang on a second here. These guys, these guys care. They want to win now. Yeah. See, it's interesting that because the the Ryder Cups I remember being most animated about were not European wins, but they were Keough Island yeah. and Brookline because they were the two that people said, "Oh, behaviour stepped over the edge." But I I I, I loved them as contests. I know my friends. You know, uh, and and anybody who's not fully into golf, they'll all watch the Ryder Cup because of the atmosphere. You know, if it was the President's Cup, nobody watches the President's Cup. It's a friendly. You know, they, they, those players all play with each other week in, week out in the States. There, there is niggle in the, in, in, the, in the match between Europe and the States, again, because we feel we've got a point to prove. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, I think that's way ahead of this idea that we're all friends in the team room and all that. It's just we have a real common goal in Europe. And, and that's the, is, you know, the legacy of, you know, going back to the 80s with Seve that, you know, we weren't even getting into the majors in the States. We weren't even getting a, a fair shot at it. We weren't considered, you know, they were our big brother or, you know, we have we have a chip on our shoulder, probably two chips on our shoulder. And, and it, it showed up, I think, now that the US care, and they do care about the Ryder Cup, that Europe can be very proud of that. Just skipping ahead a bit, because one Ryder Cup, which was a huge European victory, was the 2004 Oakland Hills, which also has become a, a very important course for you in your career. But that was captained by Bernard Lang. And I noticed you said that he was a, a sort of hero of yours. Was he, that... he, uh, I don't know. He was the guy I looked up to and admired. He was the, the professional's professional. I think, I don't know if hero, can Bernard be a hero? I think, I think he's more of, he's the guy I would have admired and learned the most from. You know, this is a guy who had the yips a couple of times and came back from it, came, you know, overcame adversity. By all accounts, when he was turned pro, he couldn't hit his hat. He was, you know, pretty rubbish at that stage and he just got through it all. He worked through it and, and certainly his personality, yeah, that would be more, I would look to him to learn more. But, you know, heroes are swashbuckling and, yeah. you know, even though he can do a swashbuckling swing, Bernard, but, yeah. you know, Seve is a hero. That's... Uh, a different style of thing. I was very lucky. I played, you know, I had some great captains. Mark James in 99 was incredibly entertaining, was a great captain in the team room. 
unfortunately a losing captain with some catastrophic errors and and you know that will always the strangest thing about the Ryder Cup is if you win you're a great captain if you lose you're a terrible captain mm-hmm. actually what you do is irrelevant it's the result that determines what people think of you because we've had some bad captains who have won uh, and we've had some great captains who've lost and they they get hammered but obviously Mark made a few catastrophic errors uh, you know or did that will never be made again. He took a few. He took a few for the team. Put it like that. You know, you got to play your rookies. You got to play everybody. You know, you got to try and play everybody first day. You got to get everybody played before the singles. You know, you don't want to pick too many. You know, there's lots of different things that we could change. But then I played under uh, Sam, Wuzzy, and Bernard. And Sam and Wuzzy were the, very similar. Arm around your shoulder. I'm dropping you because I'm saving for the next match. I really believe in you. You're the man, you know, and would be very, you know, trying to build up your confidence, very personable, very much. Bernard, the opposite. Bernard gave out to me at the first team meeting on in the tournament because I think I laid up on the uh, sixth hole with a five wood into the hazard. And he sat at the team meeting that night, everybody sitting there quiet. And he says, you know, we'll make sure nobody lays up into the hazard or number six tomorrow. And of course, I was the only one who'd done it that day. Uh, but he was... As you would expect, he, he was on every par three telling you what what happened to the groups before, what clubs to hit, very much on top of it. Uh, Wuzzy and, and Sam gave you the impression they believed in you, you know, and, and let you run with it. Uh, Bernard, not that he didn't believe in you, but was there to help you more, wanted to be involved more, uh, you know, a little bit more control, let's say. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, we had Faldo, which was... There was a lot of things that went wrong in that, no doubt about it. We didn't have, you know, I'd won a couple of majors. I think myself, Lee and, and Miguel Angle Jimenez were the older guys. And, you know, we didn't have a captain in the team room. We didn't have somebody standing up there. We could have done with uh, Darren Clark was the pick. You know, it would have been nice to have somebody who job would have been to sort of lead the players in the team room like Monty had done for many years. I think, you know... It, it was a weird one. You know, I think Nick wanted us to play like he played golf, which is do your own thing and whatever gets you playing your best as an individual, you know that and just go about it. And we were 12, we were a rudderless ship, to be honest. We were 12 individuals not known, you know, just didn't work. And, and that was a good experience. Monty then in 2010, he, you know, just took all the best ideas that he'd seen over the years, put them together uh, and just let let it happen that way. It was again instilled a lot of confidence in his team, a bit like the Woozy and the Sam Torrance, but but had learned from all the Ryder Cups, the good and the bad, and, and just made sure he he did all the good stuff and and not make any of those mistakes that other captains had to make to to learn from. How would you how would you captain? I'm presuming you would like to captain one day. I'd love to captain. Uh, it's a difficult process, you know. As I said, uh, you can make. You can be a great captain, and if your team loses, you know that's it. You're 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 done for. You're judged on that forever. I, I have my notes over the years. I take notes of what I would do and what I don't, what I wouldn't do, and I'm, I'm sure I will do it again uh, and again. Try and gather what what has worked in the past and do it again, and try and eliminate the mistakes that have happened in the past. But obviously, you have got to work with your team. It's becoming extraordinarily hard to win on on not to, to win on foreign ground. So when you're away from home, like that set up last time in Hazeltine, uh, 
Bombers Paradise. It was set up, they got a stats guy in. And they've got a stats guy who says, look, if you make it a birdie fest, the US are definitely going to win. Hmm. So they just turned it into a birdie fest. Fast greens, soft greens, Bombers Paradise. The US are going to beat us in a birdie fest. What's Paris National going to be? It's not going to be a birdie fest. You said it's not going to be a Podrick Harrington course, it? No, no, it wouldn't be my style of golf. Your wildcard course. selection yeah, yeah. is not... No, 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 I'm not waiting. They're not talking about me behind my back and going to surprise me, that's for sure. No, it, it, you know, I'd advocate in the Ryder Cup down the road. I know it's not going to happen too soon. It should be an independent setup. Yeah. The Australian PGA should come in and set it up, something like that. It's, 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 we're too, the two teams are too close and too good that, as I said, given home, home field advantage now, it just, we needed it in Europe back in the day. We needed the bias because, you know, we were trying to, we, we were generally trying to have eight players be 12 or, or close to that. And we were, we needed the system to work. Uh, but nowadays we're good enough to beat them on their, on their yeah. own terms. But it's tough when you have the biases. Let's come back to the majors then, because now you said you couldn't remember where you finished at Trin uh, when you were fifth. But then, skip forward, 2002 was a good unit. Yeah. So I'm going to list the majors and you tell me what position you finished. There's, there's only, no, there's only, uh, no. <laughs> I've got to tell you, but there's only, I can tell you the majors that matter. Okay, no, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the majors. Okay. You tell me what position you finished. The Masters in 2002. No idea. <laughs> okay, you were fifth. No, I didn't. US Open at Bethpage. Now I remember you going along very well there for a while. So. I remember that one. Did, I don't think I had a chance to win it, but I, was, I played well and was competitive. Did you play with Woods that year as well? And the, did you, or are you in the group ahead or group behind you? Don't, don't remember. Don't remember. Don't remember, obviously. Uh, eighth at the US Open. And then Muirfield is the one I presume you would remember. 2002 is a standout Open. I had a, as it turned out, I had a par down the last to get in the playoff. But that really isn't what stood out for me. That's the first time I've ever turned up at a tournament where my long game far outsurpassed my short game. I struggled big time that week in the greens. I played majestic tee to green. Probably the, I put it up there that week as the best golf I ever played, as, compa- as good tee to green as I ever played anywhere. Unfortunately for me, I always considered at the time an outlier. I didn't know how I did it. Didn't know why I did it. Didn't know why I played so well tee to green. I, I was just, um, like, it was completely the opposite. Sort of, I hit fairways and greens all week, like, just beautiful, struck the ball, beautiful, great chances. And struggled on the greens. Like, if I had a, an average week in the greens, clearly I would have been, I would have been winning. Uh, so, but it did, I didn't learn anything from it. I just couldn't, I didn't know why. That was, it was always one of those ones that, and I put it out there as, as, I still turned up at majors at that stage and it only changed when I got to winged foot in 2006. I still turned up at majors believing I needed to get lucky, have a big week in order for me to win. I, as in, I, I, thought it was, I thought I could win a major, but I believed it was a, nearly an outer body experience for me to win the major. It needed to be that extraordinary week for me to win the major. But when I turned up at winged foot in 2006... I had a better plan in place, better preparation. I played the golf I expected to play. Again, played much better, majestic tee to green for me. Uh, and had three pars to win the tournament. Hmm. You know, that's how close I got. I know winged foot is remembered because Monty hit the seven iron in the last and Phil messed it up. I hit three pars to win there. Hmm. And I hit three good tee shots. So I'd done the hard work. Uh, 
I bogeyed the first hole, first time I'd missed the green all day on the 16th, I bogeyed the 16th. And then I pressed too hard on 17 and 18. You know, nowadays, I probably would have parred the last two holes and got, in, got myself into the playoff. Uh, but, but by winged foot, you're, a, I presume, a totally different player character you won a couple of times on the PGA yeah, yeah, yeah no I, I, I was a different player and, and my game was coming but still it's a major you can have great players you get to majors why are majors easier to win because you know 90% of the field more 95% of the field 98% of the field does get it horribly wrong coming into majors they they have coaches they have you know all sorts of things going on they, they treat it as it is a different week but it's it's amazing how they over overdo it. They, 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 they're like how many guys play well the week after a major. Hmm. Like it's startling how many guys. So I, I got a good formula together that got me prepared for a major. And when I turned up at a major at that stage, and this is the key to playing well, I believed my game was good enough as is to win a major. I didn't believe I needed the big week. I, I, I knew it was, I don't mean that big week, but I didn't believe that. I needed the stars to align to win. I just knew I was already there. So when Carnoustie comes around then, um, you have all that knowledge in the back. And yeah. it, do you just feel comfortable that week uh, until the 72nd hole? I, I was... I, I, all majors, I had a good formula. I, I Working on the principle, you know, do my preparation right. I'll play well in three out of four. Uh, three out of four, I'll compete in two out of, two out of four. And if I compete in two out of four... This is my logic. Every two years, that's four times I'm in contention. I should get one win. That's really good in major speak. So I was, I, this worked out in my head. Just turn up, feel like you're ready, as I, as I did, and let it happen. And yeah, Carnoustie was, I was one of the best players in the game not to have won a major at that time. I would have been well tipped. Uh, and I played nicely. And then when I got to Sunday, was the, you know, I, played unbelievable on Sunday hit it mm. fantastic uh, all the way to the 72nd hole and, and just really it was an overconfidence thing on the 72nd hole I, I do have the habit of doing it I still still to this day I have the habit it's like like laying up on par on par fives it's one of the hardest things to do because it's too easy I got in the tee in 18 I'd driven it so well all day I was going to just bust it down the middle of the fairway yeah this is great this is great yeah no problem Got to the top of the backswing and I'd given it, oh my God, don't hit it left. And I succeeded. I've always, by the way, I've never hit a golf shot in my entire life that didn't, that didn't go where I wanted it to go. Right. So that is, that uh, didn't go where you wanted it to go. Oh, it did. So it, did, it, it went where you wanted it to go. Yeah, I didn't want it to go left, so where'd it go? That's kind of Bob Rotella speak as well, isn't oh, it? Oh, well, I've worked with Bob. Yeah, that is the truth. Of it. I've worked with Bob, but very much so. Since 1997, I've worked with Bob and, you know, I read his book then and, you know, really at the start, the innocence of it at the start, it was so beautiful. Uh, but I've had to work harder. But through that period when I was winning the majors, there's no doubt I, I, I was right on top of my, my routine and Bob Rotella stuff. I was in a very, very nice place. Uh, and yeah, but I still to this day, I've never hit a golf shot where, it didn't, where I didn't ultimately. And I would I assume that's the case with most people that, you know, if you... I get that thought, don't hit it left. Well, I'll succeed and don't hit it left. So anyway, yeah, into the, you hit it miles right into the burn it went. But the whole, the, the, that, that sporting drama, golfing drama, 
that theatre there as you came down the 18th and Garcia was coming the other way playing the 17th and you sort of met on the bridge and again a lot was made of that and we've talked about it oh the, oh, there's a stare or, or the but you didn't really you were so focused you almost well I, look I was very aware of what was happening at the time and and uh, I was walking across the bridge trying to look confident and stoic and you know I still got this and you know I wasn't I was I was absolutely 100% trying not to make myself look in any shape or form weak or like I've messed up I was trying to be right I'm I'm still here and you know he smiled I don't know what to read into the smile who could you who knows what you you know you could read a million things into it if you wanted to but they all mean nothing it only means what you're thinking in your own head and you know I was thinking right I've still got this I've hit one bad shot everybody can hit a bad shot I can I can still do it from here. So uh, after you finish the seventy second hole and uh, Patrick yeah. runs on through and you flip him upside down or whatever and carry him off, then yeah. there's that helped you yeah, get ready for the. Well, you didn't know you were going to be in a playoff at that point, but just sort of set things in your mind again. You know, clearly when I hit my second, third shot after taking a penalty drop, I hit it in the hazard. I felt the opposite of the first shot. I was deflated, devastated. I felt I'd lost the open. Uh, my caddy spent it five minutes or whatever, whatever it took to get to the golf ball, talking me around, and I think I wanted to strangle him to start off with. But by the time I hit that chip shot in the seventy-second hole, it's the greatest shot I've ever hit in my life. I was actually back in the zone. Hmm. You know, it takes t- uh, what I was alluding to with the majors. It takes me three weeks to get in the zone, and it, I actually dropped out of it and back into it. Which is, and I'm not too sure if any other sportsman has ever been in the, if you're in the zone you know it and when you drop out of it it's extraordinarily hard to get back in but I got back into it hit a great chip shot hold the putt was devastated again when I hold the putt because it was over and I thought I'd lost again I was back into that my son ran on the green he looked at me like I was the, the champion anyway so that cheered me up no end I sat in the recorder's hut they turned off the TV because they were obviously embarrassed for what had happened to myself and uh, I wanted them to turn back on because I needed to see what Sergio did thankfully you know Sergio laid up off the last he was the best driver of the ball in the game at the time and he laid up with an iron off the tee left himself a lot to do hit a good shot in the bunker hit another good shot well an average shot anyway to about 8 feet and when he's hitting that putt I'm watching it and at no stage did I go miss 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 or wish that he missed now I knew I needed to miss but I was I just kept telling myself I was going to win I'm going to win this open so when he did miss I didn't get a higher or a low from, there was no emotional change hmm. I just was I'm going to win this tournament logically he had to miss for me to win the tournament but I didn't sit there going gee I need him I wish I wish I wish he misses or you know I just said no I'm going to win I'm going to win this and just kept imagining myself winning the tournament so when he did miss I just came out of that recorder's hut and people would see I came onto that first tee. I was still in the zone, ready to go, focused. There was no, uh, which I think is one, I often see this in, in playoffs, people tend to be happy to be there. Mm. You're never going to be happy if you lose it. It's actually a worse place to be if you lose it. So I wasn't, I didn't get to the first tee thinking, well, I've got another chance. I just got to the first, the playoff tee with, I'm going to win this. Yeah. So, uh, and when you when you do win it, do you feel then? Uh, I'm a I'm a different player now. I've not I've arrived, but how no, did it feel in the immediate? No, afterwards? it was very exciting. It's always very exciting. Your first is incredibly exciting. You can't ever, you know, you can only have your first once, and that's the way it is. But there was something missing. I'd messed up the seventy second hole. Right, 
I played the four playoff holes majestic. I'd done redeem myself, but I hadn't won like you dream of winning as a kid. I so didn't even have though the, you'd won the Open? I didn't have the glory of playing the 72nd hole well. So you still wanted that? There's something. Oh, okay, so that's done. I've won the Open Championship, but I could do very it Very exciting. Very exciting, but it definitely left something longing. Oh. Yeah. Wasn't, do, you, do you know anybody who dreams of winning the, the, the Open Championship coming down the second, 72nd hole and hitting two balls in the war? Well, I think I people dream of winning the Open by just holding a winning putt, which you had in the, in the playoff. They just, or do you need the walk down this? Ah, yeah, but they don't. I messed up the hole. And, and, and that was, you know, it, I'd spent eight years with Bob Torrance working on the game to, so not to do that. So it was a huge, and, and to this day, it's a huge crutch I bear all the time. Like it, it damaged my driving no end for the for, for the rest of my career. There, there is no doubt about it that that one shot is so deeply embedded. It's really, really, really hurt the rest of my game for the rest of my career. Really? Yeah, hundred percent. It's it's stuck in there. You, the one thing you don't want to do when you're under pressure like that, your one opportunity you hit a a bad shot like that, it it, it hurts. It's. It's tough. So you win the Clannard Dog. Actually, I remember everyone was talking about Patrick uh, demanding that it be filled with ladybirds. But uh, did, did that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, you, yeah. Did, you didn't fill it with actual ladybirds. Uh, well, my, my son ran onto the green, and when he first touched the trophy, he said, "Could we put ladybirds?" Oh, no, he in? did say that. Yeah, but you he didn't did. put ladybirds in it. Yeah, I did. Of course, he thought it was a piece of tupperware. So the week before, we'd been collecting bugs, as you do, as cruel as you would be, and put them in little jam jars and things like that. So he just saw another jam jar. So, yes, there was a ladybird in. Oh, that's fine. One yeah, I, I think it's it. different. We know it didn't, of course not. But I, I got a number of different, uh, for everybody who worked in my team, I got them a, a watch and it's all engraved with the trophy and ladybirds flying around oh. and into it. So it's kind of stuck with me. I have a ladybird head cover. It's kind of stuck with it. It was, you know, for he was three and a half. It was just put it all in perspective, you know. Yeah, you've just won the Open. You've got the Claret Joe, but hey. It's just a piece of Tupperware. I say Tupperware because I'm used to speaking in the city. It's just another jam jar. <laughs> piece of Tupperware. Imagine the army have that, which yeah. they will. <laughs> um, so, but and even though you're not a drinker yourself, are you not a drinker at all? Really, I manage it. Sherry at Christmas, maybe. No, no, I, 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 yeah. Not in the Irish or Scottish tradition, though. So I'm actually no, I'm very much in the Irish and Scottish tradition. I'm actually the opposite of. I just don't drink. I just wouldn't sit and have a drink. Okay, all right, okay. So, but anyway, so but you decided you put some uh, whiskey in the cottage. Was that your? Um... I, there was all sorts of things put in it, but the the story you're referring to is, I have some friends out in San Francisco. My my caddy's older brother, my, one of my friends from it's the best friends from younger days who I played golf with. I know a group of people out there, so I brought the trophy with me out to San Francisco. I, a couple of Irish bars, Foley's, and the the bank. And I brought it around and I was going home one night with it in the in the taxi and it was leaking. It was there was obviously still whiskey or remnants in it and it was coming out the bottom of the trophy case. And this is the actual real one. This isn't my replica, like and it's, it's dripping out and the taxi driver is looking and he's kinda of going, Well, what's in the in the steel box? And I'm kinda of going I'm even though he's actually got a golf glove on driving the car, so he's probably into his golf, I've kind of given it to Yeah, it's just uh, it's an organ. Body parts because this like kind of red stuff is got. I'm just trying to get out of this thing. Is I should have really shown it to him. I didn't, uh, but yeah, it was a it was a funny story for ten minutes. The taxi, taxi. What's in it? What's in it? You know, you never let him see it. I should have, but I was 
it was late. I was going home. I, I, I needed to get home. I was in that, you know, that state you need to get home. Yeah. I was in that state. I needed to get home. And plus I didn't really want to make such an emphasis of the fact that I was dripping on the, in the back of the car whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to the, the Burkdale, the Open, you know, the next year, beware the injured golfer. But, you know, skip ahead to the, the 17th and one of the great shots in the final round of a, a major championship. Uh, Burkdale is the opposite to Carnoustie. I played great golf all week, swung the club, beautiful, hit all the shots, played, you know, consistent, was in the last group on Sunday, you know, was favourite going out Sunday, played beautifully Sunday, hit some beautiful shots Sunday. Uh, hit a great three wood onto the, the six, 15th hole to make birdie then came down the 17th hole and I was left at this shot 278 yards 274 okay. yards god it's amazing it's drifting a little 278 yards uh, and I hit five wood off a down slope it was my favourite club in the bag hmm. and Bob Torrance always said this it's easy to hit a good shot when you're feeling great it's really difficult to hit an average shot when you're feeling bad. I was feeling great. I had my favourite club. I was playing great. Why wouldn't I take the shot on? You know, it's completely different. If I'd come into the 70, 71st hole, I had a two-shot lead. If I was struggling, if I'd gone from a two-shot lead to a two-shot lead and dropped a few shots, yeah, I would have hit nine-iron sandwich in there. I would have, but no. I could win it there and then. And I'm, a huge amount of golf is hitting the shots, the right shot at the right time. And that's, part of that is how you feel and how you're playing at that time. You don't want to go aggressive when you're, when you're struggling with your game unless you're forced into it. And, and likewise, when your things are going for you, then you keep taking them on. Were you close to not playing because of the wrist injury? I was very close. I, I'd injured my wrist. I'd won the, the Irish PGA the week before. And as you do, I came back and upstairs in my golf room, I was working on my speed uh, and I was hitting an impact bag. I was doing one-handed swings at the time and I remember I got ball speed up to 177 mile an hour one-handed, which is pretty special. So is this all a massive lie? Was it actually playing Space Invaders down here? (laughs) (laughs) And you've created this story. (laughs) No, and I decided one of the drills I was doing at the time was I'd hit an impact bag. So I decided... Yeah, this this speed work's going well, one-handed. I used to hit one-handed shots on the range at the mm. time. So I decided to hit an impact bag flat out, one-handed, and I jarred something in my wrist, and I I couldn't play golf. Uh, you know, I iced it up, anti-inflammatories, but I then couldn't swing a golf club. That was Saturday evening, Sunday same, Monday the same. I was getting treatment two, three times a day. I was going over to Phil Mickelson's room in, 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 the hotel, in his hotel. He had a, a laser light treatment and I was using that, obviously non-invasive sort of stuff, you know, because I was getting so much of the, of, of the you know, manipulation treatment. Obviously, you can only take so much of that yeah. when it starts to inflame it. So, you know, icing it and the laser light treatment is another way of doing it that, you know, I could... So basically, I was getting treatment, you know, for four hours or five hours a day on this thing and... Was he in the room or were you just breaking into his hotel room to use it? Uh, he was in the room, okay. yes. Uh, this was yes. with permission. Please. Yes, it was with his permission. And, you know, when I got to the... I hit no full shots onto the range on Thursday morning and I obviously hit those gingerly. Uh, I got on the golf course and it was the worst day. It wasn't as bad as the hour we spent at Muirfield in 2002, but it was the worst conditions consistently. We'd gone out and, you know... 
it was cold and wet going out there. If you remember Sandy Lyle walked in, <laughs> he, he talked the conditions. And for me, I, it probably wasn't a bad thing because I was, you know, it meant everybody was struggling. I was struggling. I wasn't too sure about this wrist. And, and on the sixth hole, I hit it left into some briars. Uh, you know, it was kind of wiry, briary stuff. And my hack out was with a, like a sand wedge, but I had to hit it. Mm. And so it was the first time I'd gone after a shot since I'd hurt the wrist. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I hit it full out flat, out of, out of heavy briary stuff, and the wrist was fine. And it was like it was like the clouds opened up and the sunshine in heavenly my world. Choir. Yeah, it could have been a heavenly choir at that moment because everybody else was miserable. But I then all of a sudden, no, I can play. Yeah. And I, I probably from there on, I was I was buzzing. And, and you are. And from from there on, after the tournament, you go to the USPGA, which I mean, I... well, I have three major wins. So the first one was very exciting. Yeah. Second one was very satisfying because I, I, I won the second one like you would dream of winning. You swung the club well. You did all those things. If you're a kid dreaming, this is how, it, you know, no errors, just played nicely. Everything went right. Had the glory of the final group and walking down the last with a lead and hitting nice shots, hitting the great shot, best shot in my career on the 72nd, 71st hole, you know, that sort of stuff, all those things. So very satisfying. First one exciting, second one satisfying. The third one, I just stole it. Hmm. just robbed it now that is fun I can tell when you get one that you didn't that it wasn't yours it was never mine it was never mine it wouldn't have been mine if I, I I was playing great golf obviously physically after the open but I got seriously dehydrated uh, on the Thursday and lost all coordination didn't know what had happened because I was hydrating it was just on the back of winning you know it was just too much two weeks later and then on the Friday the same thing happened again I got was played the front nine brilliantly and then just lost all coordination on the back nine just completely gone like on the my last two holes on my 36th hole it's par three ninth at uh, Oakland Hills I hit four iron I hit a pin high and had 80 yards for my second shot mm. 80 yards yeah like as in if there was an, I only made the cut in the mark if there was another hole I'd missed the cut yeah and then I got which happens when you win majors these things happen I got a thunderstorm on Saturday, only had to play nine holes and get, basically gave me the extra 24 hours to recover. And by Sunday, I came out fresh and strong. And, and as much, the strangest thing about Sunday is I played great golf and I was talking to somebody, who, who one of the caddies who was in the group uh, and he was just said he'd never seen golf like it. And I said to him, you cannot believe how fragile I was on the Saturday and Sunday because I'd hit some of the worst golf shots ever on the Friday. Hmm. because I'd lost coordination like I'd hit some so they were always in the back of my mind on, on Saturday and Sunday but I had no choice but to hit good shots if you know what I mean yeah. poor old Sergio again um, but I mean <laughs> I know you get the shrug and that's golf and, but you must have felt as well at that time that you were just mentally a bit stronger than some of the competition and you, you would have sensed in some people and perhaps Sergio would be a great example of that someone that was not quite so mentally robust coming down the stretch. I, I, I think I was always stronger mentally than my competitors. That's how I beat people as an amateur. I, I was better mentally. I, I had to be. There was that was the you know I had to have that resolve. Uh, I've always had a good attitude when I've hit a bad shot to recover. Uh, you know, it's not just that I had a good short game. I also didn't bother me that I hit the bad shot. I, I could I could work with it, and I wasn't thinking about the past. I was playing the shot that I had in hand, and yeah, that's how I won 
matches. That's mm. the only way I knew to play. So I think when you're looking at mentally strong, it's hard to be mentally strong when you are very consistent tee to green. You know, you, you hit the ball to 20 feet all day. You know, you're going to create no momentum by two putting all the time. Mm. I miss a few greens and get up and down. I'm feeling great about my game. And then I hit it to 20 feet and I'll probably hold the putt. And I'm one under after three holes and you're level par. You're feeling terrible. I'm feeling great. Mm. So I was always strong mentally. I always had a, a bit of fight in me. I think it's very hard. It's much harder when you have that different expectations, I suppose, higher expectations at the top. Do you, you're consistently teed green. I mean, you've won three majors. You just about, you know, Tiger apart, the best player in the world at that time. So, what 2009, 2010 things slipped away. What is that? Is that reaching the peak? And, and not, I can't imagine with you as losing motivation or losing drive. Did you try and change things? Well, I played better in 2009 than I did in 2008. I just didn't have the wins. And 2010, the same. Uh, statistically, I was a far better player. Yeah. Uh, the wins didn't come I think like my best tee to green golf ever was 2012 mm. uh, so is it just the pieces not coming together as they, they yeah, did in those you, three majors that you took yeah, you, 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 when you win tournaments like you know you could look at 2012 I, I, I needed to birdie the last to get into a playoff at the Open US Open and like I had two four puts that week Two four puts, two three puts. I had the ips at that stage. So, you know, it's amazing how people assume results determine exactly how you're physically playing. But, yeah, I think I played great 2009, 2010. There was definitely an element to be trying to sort out. And I end up, I got frustrated. I ended up changing coach with Bob because I wanted to know why I hit that shot in the 72nd hole at Carnoustie. That definitely was lingering. There's no doubt about that it. That shot still staying with you at that time. It? Oh, that... it stayed with me until I figured out why. It, what, why I hit it physically, and you know it comes full circle. I know why I hit it physically, but the solution is still mental anyway. Hmm. But I still needed to get the physical solution out of the way and, and figure that out. And that took took me. It was very simple. It took about five years uh, before I worked with it. Worked it out. 2012. I started working with uh, Pete Cowan and hit the ball beautifully. Uh, I think, yeah, you know, I, I I played well, but I did struggle with my putting. As I said, 2012 onwards, I could have got the yips. I mm. was just, was, you know, it's very hard to play that way. Yeah. You play better tee to green, but you score worse. Uh, you know, performance-wise, yeah, I, I, I look back, if, if I was going to change something, I think trying to fix that drive and, and a few other things, I certainly got worse because of that at my mental game and, and and at one stage believed I was doing all the right stuff I would have thought and believed that I just wasn't as good at the mental side of it or I wasn't as you know but I actually now have kind of come full circle and, and go actual fact I still can do the focus stuff I just have to do be better in my preparation of it well, as we speak, you've just uh, narrowly missed out on winning. I was going to say European Tour title sixteen in the in the Czech Masters. Yeah. So, do you you obviously believe that you know titles can be there? Do you believe you could still win a, a major? Oh yeah, I, I don't think I'd play if I didn't. You know, I, I want only only interested in winning. Winning tournaments is good enough, no doubt about it. But yeah, I, I would like to 
it's easier to win a major than it is a regular event no doubt about it as I said there's a lot of guys that really struggle with the the majors who are fine players Uh, yeah I I think I can do it I I actually I'm very excited about my game at the moment I'm I'm well on top of of what I need to be doing and and as I said I feel like I've I feel like I've come full circle through uh, carrying that burden of the tee shot in 2007 and I feel like I'm I'm coming out the far side I've been I said working very hard with Bob Bertella and it's been really interesting the work I've been doing because yeah I, I, I'm trying to do the right stuff on the golf course but in many respects I just haven't been doing the right stuff in, in preparation and I can see the benefits at the Czech Masters and uh, you know I, I've feel like it's going in a good direction right we've got to wrap a few things up Ronan Flood we haven't talked to him you've talked to him as the, the caddy for much of your career but he's uh, he's also married to something does that make him that is, does make him your brother-in-law really doesn't it yeah, so I think people will call they yeah. say brother-in-law but just, I think it has to be it would have to be my wife's brother to be brother-in-law right okay so he's a, he's a sort of brother-in-law but how? But uh, when did you first get to know him he is the younger brother of my one of my best friends at school, my junior foursomes partner in, mm. in the golf club. So I had known Ronan long before I knew my wife, long before, uh, you know, I've, uh, oh, 30 years, 32 years, something like that, 33 years I've known him. He was meant to be the next me in the golf club. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah. So this guy's the next Clodrick Hines. Yeah, he was he was good player. Good, good, good. <laughs> I meant golfing-wise. He right. mattered to me. <laughs> that was a good player. Um, another thing is, actually, I've seen you give clinics, incidentally. They're, they're, now, I've seen you give clinics, and they're the most, as you can imagine, a listener, the most thorough and diligent and not quite analytical, but certainly detailed clinics. But they can be pretty dangerous places as, uh, as no, well. No, uh, yeah, there wasn't. I, I, I got hit by an amateur. Any, any PGA pro will tell you they'll list off how many times they've been hit hit with golf balls clipped with clubs all sorts of things but I was teaching this guy he had a hook uh, and was on the golf course and I says right I can sort that hook out for you in, in like in 30 seconds and I got in beside him shoulder to shoulder to show him the move that he needed to do so I was standing my right shoulder to his left shoulder I was holding the club and mimicking the move right you swing like that and then I went to walk away. So obviously I'm right shoulder, his left shoulder, he's right-handed. So I stepped at a 45 degrees and he kept swinging. And he swung through and hit me up underneath the elbow. I still don't know whether he hit me with the face or the top of the club on the elbow. Like with a full, like with a full practice follow-through. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I assume a second or two of what just happened. Then, then you then felt the pain. good swing. Yeah. No, well, well, there's more to it than the pain of it. Luckily, I had a golf cart with the ice bucket on the golf cart, and I walked over and just stuck my elbow in the in in it. And so, within ten seconds, I had it in an uh, iced water. Now, who knows how dirty the water was? But however, had it in that, and literally the pain within a minute. I could feel nothing in my arm because of the, uh, it was all iced up. Mm. I had it compressed within a minute with ice. I had a bag of ice around it. So literally, and that, like as much as I got split in the arm, and if anybody ever gets banged in the elbow, it comes up like a tennis ball, I had no swelling. And so I actually managed, even though I, I think it was six stitches or something like that, and split the bursar sack, uh, it, it had a remarkable good at recovery. But the interesting thing about it was I went to the hospital and I came back after the hospital after about two hours, three hours or so, and the guy was there still, and, and he, he finished out. He was devastated that he hit me, but he still played the 17th and 18th. He then 
to my joy, he said I had solved his draw, that he did manage to hit a fade. And the up, he did send on uh, ice hockey elbow pads to me as a, a gift for hitting me on the elbow. Must have been mortified, but there we are. He was mortified, but not that mortified. He's like all golf- golfers. He was mortified, but he still played. Yeah. yeah, and was happy that his draw had been yeah. sorted. Excellent. And, and off the course, what do you do? I mean, again, we're sitting here, we've got a table tennis table there, pool, but this is more for the boys. And what do you like to do off the course to unwind? Uh, these were for me, but I, 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 to be honest, you know, I like my golf. Mm. I'm into my golf. And outside of golf, it's just family things. You know, I, I don't put my effort into my golf and I want to chill out when I'm, when I'm not playing golf. So I'm not going learning how to ski or things like that. I've just no interest in, in I've, I, haven't, I, I can't understand things like skiing and that. Why would you want to be, I'm not allowed to use that word. Why would you want to be a, uh, you can, we'll just bleep it out. Half arsed at something. Well, you can use that. God. Yeah. Like I, I, I can never ski as good as I can play golf. But it's the fun of just throwing yourself down a slope. Just but why? Speed. But it's but you can't be as good as you're going to be at golf. You don't have to be good at it. You oh, just... I do. Okay. I'd want to see if I started skiing, I'd want to be the best skier I could be, hmm. and that would mean time and effort and work to be like all the time, effort and work I would put into skiing to become at best average. Why, why would you bother? God, can you imagine how good an accountant you would have been? You would have been the most, I'm going to be the best accountant. All oh, these figures are going to be, I am going to get you some tax breaks, my friend. Um, I, w- I mean, how would you like to be thought of, or does that not bother you? It does bother me. I, I, I fully understand that I have helped create a monster in the terms of that, you know, people will judge me no end on being crazy, mad scientists all those sort of things not the legacy I probably would have wanted but I, I have fueled it many times I I'm certainly feel like I'd be misunderstood in, in many ways like I, I like to point out I haven't played golf since 1997 with a swing tot yes, and, I, I, and everybody thinks I'm standing there with loads of swing tots so I would never all I'm thinking about is my target that's it really yeah means you're not quite as Analytical. I'm nowhere near what people do. When see, when you see me doing a drill on the range, the drill is taking care of the so what, taking care of any physical thoughts. So if I put something there, so I sometimes would use blockers. So I'd put one forward of my driver and, and back here. So the club has to come outside this one and underneath this one. Well, it's a visual thing. I don't have to think about. It. I'm just not going to hit them. So another guy would say, oh, "Well, I want to take the club back a little straighter." Well. It, to actually take the club back straighter, you've got to think about it. Stick a head cover there or something. Well, the club with, has to stay outside it. Visually, you will do that. It's an instinctive thing. So I, would, I do things on the range that look silly because I don't want to be engaging my brain or thinking. And so when I go and play, I, I want to be purely instinctive and into my target, which is, put it like this, the book I write will be the opposite of what people think I am. Really? Yeah. When's that going to come out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's ten years time. Yeah, I don't know. Ten years time. I don't know. Um, I would. We've got to wrap things up. We didn't even get time to talk about the the music of Jeremy uh, German heavy metal band Rammstein. I, have you been looking at my? No, literature? no. This is old stuff here in this jukebox yeah, beside us here. Yeah, they're only the names. They're 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 modern inside. Really? It's, it's a is re- Rammstein in there? Yes, it is. Yes, it's reconditioned so, that one. Can you describe so. the music of Rammstein? It's well, it's. Uh, I'm actually. What's it's. 
it's not uh, you're overanalyzing this project. Yes, I know. What is it again? I'm new. I've, I've forgotten the term for it. Industrial metal, something like that. Is that what it's called? Industrial metal. It's yeah. It's uh, the Germans. The German, yeah. It's grunge. It's not grunge. It's I'm struggling with. Anyway, it's okay for sitting in your car on your own. Okay. Yes, get you going at times. But it's probably if I really understood the words, it's probably pretty miserable. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. admire Bernhard Langer and Rammstein. There's definitely a Germanic bent to. Well, yeah, I'd be more into uh, Imagine Dragons now and things like that. So it wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. Uh, I haven't listened to Rammstein in a while. Okay. I've got kids now. You know, I've got yeah. responsibilities. Fair enough. You have responsibilities. Uh, do they play golf? Two boys. Yeah. Other no. sports. Rugby. Rugby. Yeah, rugby big time. They're into their sports, but golf would be a little bit further down the the, the line. They, they would both be very respectable, but you know, it would be virtually impossible to follow, follow in your father's footsteps in a sport. So I, I certainly don't push them down the road, but they need to, and, and they both will. I'm sure when they're 30 years of age, they're going to turn up at some outing and they, they've got to be able to swing the club and boom it off into the trees, at least look respectable. Okay. Uh, so listen, thanks. It's been fascinating as ever talking to you. Uh, we've taken a good deal of your time. We're all off now to watch uh, Roadhouse. Thanks for talking to us. <laughs> it's not quite appropriate, Roadhouse, for the younger generation. Oh, well, I- I'm fine. I love okay. it. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.